Today's reading comes from Matthew 15, 21 through 28. The Canaanite woman's faith. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. I think it's just amazing that we don't really go way crazier than we are living with the fabrications that structure our world. Do you know what I mean at all? Like the market. It practically controls the world. Sometimes it makes people very happy, and sometimes it makes people very sad and very scared. And what even is it? It doesn't have substance, really. It's not made of atoms. It's no thing, but it seems to have so much power. Or like lines. Like, we're always making lines where there really aren't lines. And you have to act like they're real, or, I don't know, you could be arrested. Like there's some inviolable line between Minnesota and Canada? Or Mexico and the U.S.? Between my property and my neighbor's property? Like, you can own the land? I mean, isn't that weird? Jim, my husband once said, if you don't steal, you perpetuate the myth of private ownership. I know he's never stolen anything in his life, but there was something about that sentiment that really attracted me. Hierarchies. Like some people are worth more than others. People actually say this. What is someone's net worth? What a strange thing to believe in. Fashion. No thing, no atoms. But it dictates what people wear and think and listen to and eat and watch, how they talk and act. And sometimes the food is not that fulfilling. All this false structure misrepresents reality, whatever that is. It's not true. 
A lot of things are built on lies. It's disturbing, but it's accurate. Or maybe we really are already just so crazy that we don't even notice it anymore. We're just kind of controlled by all these things, or rather non-things. A little bit like drones, maybe, not really full, not really free, not fully conscious. We just turn right, turn left, stop, go, wear this, eat here, watch that, and we're really all insane. We're really blind to some truth or some chaos that's swirling all around us, but we look pretty normal. I mean, I don't know what I'm saying, but maybe normal under the circumstances is crazy. I rewatched The Cruise for like the fourth time. And I'm sorry if you've heard me go on about this before. But it's this documentary where Timothy Speed Levitch, this wild, haired, completely not normal seeming guy who's a double decker tour bus guide in Manhattan. He talks really fast and poetry like, philosophizing. And when I was watching, I had to keep rewinding it to catch the words. But there's this great scene where he's recalling a kind of conversation that he had with one of his tourists. And he'd been talking to her about the grid plan, the layout of avenues and streets and square blocks all over Manhattan. And he was talking about how the grid plan emanates from a lie, and how he'd really like to blow it all up. And he says, rewrite the streets to be much more a self-portraiture of our personal struggles rather than some imaginatively stunted real estate broker scheme. Like, how about some zigzags, man? And then apparently the tourist is a little bit taken back by this, and she says, I never even thought of that. I can't even imagine that. Everyone likes the grid plan. How could you not like the grid plan? It's so functional. Everyone likes the grid plan. And he's recalling the conversation in the film, and he's really agitated. He's like, who's everyone? Everyone likes the grid plan? It's so functional? And he stops, and the camera stops, and someone curled up under a blanket in the alley. He says, whoever that is under the white comforter cuddled up with 34th Street and Broadway, existing on the concrete of this city, hungry and disheveled, struggling to crawl their way through existence, what do they think of the grid plan? He can't believe that the tourists never questioned the grid plan. What's this woman thinking, he says? We're forced to walk these right angles. I mean, doesn't she find that infuriating? How can anyone so completely be allegiant, allegiant to the grid plan? Lines and squares, like it's some divine decree. How can you pledge your allegiance to a structure created by capitalists in 1807? He says, I think most noteworthy is this idiom, 
I can't even imagine altering the grid plan. I can't imagine anything different than the grid plan. It's like saying, he says, that I can't imagine even just standing up on a chair in the middle of my, in my room to change perspective. It's like saying I can't imagine changing my mind about anything. Take a right turn, a right turn, a right turn, then there's a red light and a green light and a yellow light. And then he goes on for like maybe 10 minutes more about this. It's like he's so disturbed by the lack of imagination, the inability to question. I mean, he rides a double-decker bus all over the grid plan of Manhattan, all over the streets, all over Manhattan all day, but he refuses to give his allegiance to it. Somehow he refuses to believe in it. He may live within the structure, but he's still not buying it. He's out there to get all the people riding on the bus to not believe in it either. To get them to imagine something more beautiful, or something more just, or something more true. I could watch that movie like a thousand times. The structures of 21st century America are different, obviously, than the structures of first century Palestine. But I think that the story that Rachel read about Jesus and the Canaanite woman is calling the grid into question. At first, it just looks like Jesus is kind of a bit of a, I really don't know what word to use, swinish brute. And he answered, it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's like she wants help and she wants mercy, and he sort of calls her a dog. Oh, loving savior. But there was this grid that people were used to believing in that governed people's behavior. Honor was a huge thing. It was this elaborate system, really, that structured society, sort of like social status or class. Some groups of people had more honor by privilege of birth or lineage than others. I mean, that's not really hard to imagine. But unlike social status in America, which is supposedly like a ladder that you can climb by hard work, theoretically, In Jesus' day, you couldn't really get more honor. You couldn't get more honor by making money or getting your name in the newspaper or winning American Idol. There was this limited amount of honor allotted to you. And basically, you just had to preserve what you had. You had to make sure that you didn't lose any of it for yourself or your people. It's what people call a limited good society. There was a finite amount of good in the world. There was a finite amount of honor in the world. You couldn't create it for yourself. There was no excess to go around. So you had to be really, really careful about letting any of it go. You had to really cling to what you had. That doesn't seem that foreign, really, either. I mean, everything's different, but 
everything's also sort of the same. I mean, people sort of measuring who's better or smarter or cuter or skinnier or richer or more clever or articulate or more successful. It's like we have to size people up to know where we are in the hierarchy. As if the hierarchy were true. As if everyone wasn't beautiful. As if you always have to compare, as if there were not enough to go around. It's a lie that we live by and judge by, and it's life-sucking. But the rules were different then, sort of. Public conversations were like little games, honor contests. And people would kind of gather around these public conversations to watch, and they would gauge how well the contestants were preserving their relative honor. And a lot of the stories in the Gospels, like Jesus talking to the Pharisees, are stories about these public encounters. But this encounter between Jesus and the Canaanite woman is kind of like totally off the grid. It's kind of crazy from the get-go, because women weren't really even supposed to play the game at all. They weren't supposed to be, even be a part of the public conversation. So a woman trying to talk to a strange man that wasn't part of her family, she's not just kind of risking whatever little honor she might have. She's like the, off the charts recklessly throwing it away. I mean, the onlookers, onlookers were probably like sucking in their breath. Oh my gosh, woman, go home where you belong. You are a fool. You're insane. And Jesus, by merely speaking to a woman instead of her male representative, is risking honor loss big time. When you think of that, and you think of the how many times Jesus actually spoke to women and countered women in the Gospels, it's amazing, really. And then there's this whole thing. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. That's like some huge buzzer or some siren going off, or like planting dynamite in words. Canaanite was a totally obsolete and anachronistic term by Matthew's day, seeing as Canaan hadn't been around for centuries. Canaan had been was what the promised land had been called before the Israelites slaughtered the Canaanites and took all the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites get instructions as they're going about and conquering the land to kill all the men when they attack a city, but to keep the women and children and animals for their use. But if it's a Canaanite city, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them all the women and all the children and all the animals. It seems like a little bit much, really. But so this is not only a woman that Jesus encounters, but according to Matthew's gloss, she represents the archetypal enemy of Jesus' people. You wouldn't expect this woman to be here 
asking this man for healing for her daughter, not in a zillion years. It kind of seems insane that the Canaanite woman would want or expect anything at all from the Lord of her enemies. You know? It all looks so recklessly inconsiderate of reality, inconsiderate of normality, in violation of the caution you would expect in the game. It's off the grid, outside the rules. Isn't she worried about honor and shame? She just calls out, Have mercy on me, Lord. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. Help. Save my daughter. The disciples are completely worried. They beg, the text says. They beg Jesus to send her away. It's just so unseemly. It's just so embarrassing and shameful. They're worried about their honor, even being in the vicinity of this encounter. It's like something ugly might rub off on them. But Jesus speaks to her. Admittedly, he does sort of give her the parting line. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, my people. Then he asks, and this is where he seems a bit jerky. Is it fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? And that, at that point, I'm pretty sure I'd say, screw you. Or maybe I'd be like so ashamed, like, oh, yeah, yikes, what was I thinking? I must have been out of my mind. Oh, yeah, the limited good. Oh, yeah, the grid. Oh, yeah, I guess I forgot for a moment how things operate, how the world works. Oh, yeah, right angles and the right angles and the squares and the stoplights. Oh, yeah, my enemy. I'm sorry. I'm insane. Forget I ever asked. Goodbye. But the woman in the story is just not going back there. She's not giving her allegiance to the grid. She may be crazy, but she's just not going to believe in the limitations. She's just not going to turn the corner and obey the stoplight. And she knows that Jesus is with her in this. They love her. She says, I'm not asking for the children's bread as if there isn't enough to go around, as if there isn't enough for everybody, as if there isn't enough for even the pets under the table. It's like she has faith or something about God that is far beyond the grid. Like she knows somehow that the crumbs, just the crumbs, that fall from this plenteous, lavishly graceful bread will be enough for her daughter. She's just not going to buy the limited good society. She's not worried about the scarcity of food, of good, of honor, of love, of mercy, or of healing. She may be crazy, but she believes in the unlimited grace of God. 
And Jesus immediately responds, Woman, your faith is great. It's like Jesus and the Canaanite woman have an understanding. The grace of God can't be contained. He knows and she knows that he didn't just come for the lost sheep of Israel. The love is huge. There's enough for the Canaanites, the conquered and the conquerors, unbelievably. There's enough for the lost sheep and the lost goats, the Gentiles, the lame, the Romans even. Enemies of all varieties, your enemies, my enemies. There's enough for the pets under the table, the dogs, probably even the cats. However the structures we create conspire to contain it, The love of God cannot be contained. Not by the walls of first century Jewish religion, or the walls of a sexist society, or a limited good society, or the grid plan. The realities of the empire can't contain it. Our theology, our brains, even your imagination can't contain it. The mercy and the grace and the love is not finite. It's infinite, bigger than anything. That's really hard to believe. But this woman in the story seems to believe it. And Jesus does too. So you have to ride the bus Play the games, make the money, buy the insurance, watch TV. Okay, you have to stop at the stoplights. But you don't have to give your allegiance to the grid. You don't have to believe in it. You don't have to compete for some limited good. Because it's not limited. And it makes a difference where you put your faith. It might confuse the traffic flow if you don't give your allegiance to the grid. It might muck up the clarity that is, after all, a lie. It might throw a kink into the system that runs the world if you believe in God. But wouldn't that be great?